Hey, good morning. I think it's because I grew up in like the 90s and the early 2000s, but every time I come up here, I, I have this, um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this at church, but I watched a lot of MTV, and so I want to say, good morning, party people, you know, do you guys know what I'm talking about? No, you guys didn't watch MTV in the mornings in the 90s, I guess. How's everybody doing? <laughs> I got to tell you a couple things before we get started. Um, so I don't know how this sermon starts, so that's one thing you should know. Uh, I was pacing back and forth upstairs in the offices like, hmm, if I could just like nail down the first couple minutes, that would be good, God, if you could help me. And so I was just pacing back and forth in my own world, and all of a sudden I hear a voice say, what are you doing? And I look up and it was Cambria. I think she had been standing there for quite some time, um, and I had no idea. So that's one thing that you should know. The other thing that you should know is I'm, I'm a little skeptical because... Um, a handful of weeks ago, I brought the morning's message, and as I was reading, I thought, you know what, I really don't want to touch this scripture that's about the uh, circumcision and foreskin getting wiped on Moses' feet. I'll leave that for next week for Danny. Um, so that was my gift to Danny, and I think Danny's gift to me was, I'm going to preach nine plagues and then leave the tenth one for Andy this morning. So here we are. If you're uh, new with us, uh, we are preaching our way through the book of Exodus, our sermon series. We're calling it The Way Forward. And we're really just going verse by verse. We're asking God, God, what do you have to teach us through the story that really all Jews drew their meaning as a people from? The story of being slaves in Egypt and crying out to God and God hearing their voice and bringing them out of Egypt through these miraculous signs. And so this morning, we're going to come to the 10th and the final plague, which is, do you guys know? Yeah. What it, yeah, what is it? It's the Passover. It's the Passover. And I, I think for us to fully understand the Passover, we need to kind of go down a, a trip down memory lane, if you will. And we need to cover some bases, because I, I think what can happen is we can read this story, and it's, a, it's an ancient story. And if we don't understand the context and where this story is coming from, we, we read it and it's a wonderful story, it's something that we log in our mind, but we don't allow it to really shape our hearts. It doesn't connect with us. And so I was thinking a, a fair bit about this story this morning, and I, I was thinking about this phrase that we use all the time as Christians. You guys know this phrase, it's, God meets us where we're at. How many of you believe that to be true? How many of you have experienced that to be true? Well, I was thinking about that, and I thought, if that is true, and I, I believe that that is true, then it is also true that God meets people where they're at, even if they lived 3,600 years ago in a culture and a society that is very different than ours. Does that make sense? And so when we're going to talk about this story that happens not in Orange County in 2021, it happens in Egypt about 1,200 years B.C., this is a place that is very, very different from where we live. And if we don't kind of get an idea of what this place is like, I think we're going to miss the significance of the story. And so before we jump in, we're going to be in uh, chapter 11 and 12, if you like to just get ahead and put your finger in a Bible. I want to cover our bases a little bit with a couple things that I think are really important. Because this 10th and final plague, it really centers around one key figure in the story. It's God's action towards this man that we know of as Pharaoh. A pharaoh is not just some random guy. You guys know that. It turns out that Pharaoh is the ruler, and he is the deity that sits on the throne in people's eyes over the most powerful empire in the entire world at the time. And so let's talk about Pharaoh for a second. It turns out that the majority of Egyptians do not see Pharaoh as a human being. 
This is the common understanding of who Pharaoh is. Pharaoh to the Egyptians is the embodiment of the god Horus. If you're taking notes, that's H-O-R-U-S. And Horus is the god that rules over all of the sky. He is the god who is above the earth, who looks down upon it from his perch, and he rules over it. And the understanding is that is Pharaoh. People don't just believe this as like a, a propaganda campaign. They believe it to be true. This is how I, I know that they truly believe it. Every now and then throughout Egyptian history, a pharaoh will die, and his son will be two or three years old. And do you know what they do with the son? They immediately make him the next pharaoh. They don't have a plan in place to help shepherd him along until he's old enough. They don't need that. Why? Because he is the embodiment of the god Horus. In the understanding of the Egyptian gods and goddesses, Horus is the son of the goddess Hathor. This is very important for the story. I'm not just telling you Egyptian god and goddess history. Hathor is the goddess of all fertility and life. For life to exist on planet Earth in the Egyptian mind, Hathor has to put a stamp on it and allow it to be. Hathor is the daughter of the great deity Amun-Ra. Anybody see that awesome movie with Brendan Fraser, The Mummy? You guys watch that movie? They talk about Amun-Ra. That was my first exposure to Amun-Ra. Uh, one of Brendan Fraser's breakthrough performances, if I will. <laughs> Amun-Ra is the god who created all things, who sits on the throne of the entire universe and rules over everything. Okay, you guys got all that? Pharaoh is this god, this god's grandson in people's understanding. He has blood pulsing through his veins where he is in part the grandson of the one who rules over all things. He is the living embodiment of the god who sits above the cosmos and the stars in the sky. He has blood in his veins of the goddess Hathor who gives the rubber stamp on who gets to live and who gets to die. That is who this guy is. And so last week we learned that God is trying in his best divine way to work within human free will where people get to make decisions and God doesn't just push a button and force people to do things that they won't do. But Egypt is held captive in part by their own ruler. And it's very difficult for this person, Pharaoh, to understand that a slave people's leader, Moses, would come in and say, you need to let my people go. Who are you that your God could ever speak to me? Look around, Moses. Your people are slaves. I am the ruler over the most powerful empire that ever existed at the time. And so in chapter 5, Pharaoh can say this with a totally straight face. Moses and Aaron come into his presence. He says, you're going to let my people go. This is what our God says. And this is what Pharaoh says in response in verse 2 of chapter 5. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know him, and I'm not letting you go. In our minds, sometimes, we read this book, and we know the end story, and so now that we know the story, we, we read back in history and think, oh, man, Pharaoh, what an idiot. He really should have saw this coming. But in the ancient world, for a people who are slaves to say, our God is more powerful than you, while you're sitting on the throne of the empire, is just a ludicrous idea. And so nine times God tries to get Pharaoh's attention. And it says because of God's actions, what God does, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He just can't relent the idea that there could possibly be a God more powerful than him. This is the person we're going to meet this morning. 
The second thing that I think we need to understand about Egypt that's very important is how the culture and the society is shaped and built. It is built around this concept that many cultures still have today. It's that the firstborn son carries with him not just uh, uh, the inheritance of a household, not just the responsibility and the honor. He also carries with him the, the mandate to give Egypt a good name, to withhold the culture and say that all things, all the gods and the goddesses that we worship, there's over 2,000 of them in Egypt. Our understanding of who Pharaoh is, the firstborn chi child's job is to hold all of those things up and keep it running smoothly. Does that make sense? And so, here's a little context and then we're gonna jump in. Pharaoh, we learn in the book of Exodus, he hears this story that this guy Jacob came into Egypt with 70 people and they began to multiply and the book tells us that a new pharaoh came onto the throne and he doesn't know who these people are. He looks out there and says, who are these Hebrew people? They're not like us. They're multiplying very quickly and I'm intelligent enough to know that if they multiply and they organize, they could kill the, the empire that I've created. So what does he say that we're going to do? First, he tells all the midwives, Every time a, a woman gives birth, check. If it's a boy, kill it. And the Hebrew midwives, they, they say, you know what? We fear God too much to take life and death into our hands. And so they come up with an excuse. It's the Hebrew women. They give birth really fast, so fast we can't even get there in time. And then Pharaoh says in Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, okay, fine. You want to disobey me? Here's the new rule. Every time you find a Hebrew boy, Pick it up and throw it into the Nile River. This is where we get Moses from. And here's the point. In Pharaoh's understanding, when he sees a people group that are beginning to multiply and beginning to have influence, his mind tells him, this is how you curb that and you ruin it for them. You kill the firstborn son. You guys, you guys good? Okay, we've drank through the fire hose. How we doing, party people? Yeah. <laughs> That's just what I say to uh, flip the page here. So here we go. We're going to be in uh, Exodus chapter 11. Um, we're going to cover a lot of uh, scripture today, and I, I hope to point out some insights. But I, I think where we're going to land is um, an incredibly beautiful place to land. I, I got to tell you that if you only knew the book of Exodus, you would leave pretty darn depressed. But we've already decorated for Christmas. We're already anticipating the birth of Jesus. And because we know that part of the story, I'm going to cheat a little bit. And at the end, I'm going to go outside of Exodus and we're going to talk a bit about Jesus. We got a lot of reading to do. Exodus chapter 11. If you have a, a Bible, I would encourage you to open it up. If not, we, um, we have awesome technology here and we'll have it on the screen. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will not uh, he will let you go from there. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. So speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So here's the deal. In ancient warfare, and even in some cultures today, you guys know the phrase, to the victor goes the... And this is how it works. One military goes in and they fight another military. And when they win, the people who are on the front lines, the people who frankly did the killing, what do they get as part of their payment? 
They get to steal all the gold. They get to steal all the silver. In some cultures, they take women and children and all these sorts of things. You guys know what I'm talking about. This is what God says. Let's skip the battle because that belongs to me, says God. I'm going to take care of that. And so that you have utmost confidence that I will do what I say I am going to do, I want you just to do this. I want you to knock on your neighbor's door, and I want you to say, can I have some of your silver and gold? And they are going to freely give it to you. This is a sign that the battle is already won. You are already collecting the spoils of battle before a battle has even begun. This is how God has dispose the Egyptian people to begin to think there's something crazy going on here. They've lived through nine of the plagues. Maybe they don't completely understand what's going on, but those Hebrews, those Hebrew slaves, it's very strange to say this for an Egyptian, but their God really is powerful. Their God really has done some things that we've never seen and we don't know what to make of it, but if they're asking for our gold and our silver, here it is. So God is getting Pharaoh's attention. The story goes on and says this in verse 4. So Moses, now he's in the presence of Pharaoh, and he says, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I'm going to go into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against my people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And that after that I will go out. And he went out of Pharaoh's presence in a hot anger. Let's pause for a second right here. You notice Pharaoh never gets to speak. Pharaoh doesn't have anything left to say. I can only imagine what Pharaoh is thinking. I have a hunch that Pharaoh is trying and, and pleading inside, calling Moses' bluff, that I hope this 10th plague isn't for real. But we got to understand what's at stake here. Because when we read this and we think, oh, that's an ancient story, what God done, does is violent and terrible, and we think, like, we would never morally and ethically give a rubber stamp approval to this sort of thing. How can we ever let God do this? We have to go back and we have to remember a couple things. Excuse me, a little stuffy. We have to remember a couple things. I think the first thing that we have to recognize is this culture is not our culture. And if God meets all people where they're at, that even means that God will meet people in very messy cultures. The culture of Egypt is this, that three quarters of all the people are just slave labor to get a task done. Once the task is done, or those people are compromised, they might as well just be dead. This is a, a culture where Pharaoh and the people have no problem saying, a whole entire people group's children, just throw them into a river. The second thing we have to remember is that God created us with free will. That God is not a puppet master that just pulls the strings and makes you do whatever you want. So God is confined in some way to allowing people to make decisions on their own, and he's He's uh, working within the confines of this culture. He meets people where they're at. And so God is coming into a culture that doesn't get to do anything without the approval of Pharaoh. It's why Moses and Aaron continue to go to Pharaoh. They're not appealing to, you know, council members. They're not appealing to elders. They're not appealing to anything like that. They're appealing directly to Pharaoh. Why? Because Egypt does nothing without Pharaoh's approval. 
And we get this sense that Moses is trying to tell Pharaoh, this is going to happen if you don't relent. And when Pharaoh doesn't even speak, what does it say? It says that he left Pharaoh in a hot anger. He knows that this is going to be on Pharaoh. And then verse 9 says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all of these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. This phrase is sometimes difficult to understand, this idea that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. A lot of scholars believe that this is really what's being said here. It's not that God reaches in and touches Pharaoh and makes his heart hard. It's that God's words and God's actions before Pharaoh are making his heart hard. Does that make sense? So his heart hardening is a response to what God has done, not God reaching in and making it hard. And so his heart is hardened. I think here's the crux of the issue. If Pharaoh relents in this moment, this is what's at stake for him. What's at stake for him is that the leaders of a group of people that are slaves to him can walk into his court and say, our God says to let us go. And if Pharaoh relents and says, then go, what he's basically saying is your God is more powerful than me. For Pharaoh to say that is to crumble the entire existence in the society and the culture that he exists under. It calls into question, well, wait a second, whose gods are most powerful? I thought our gods were the most powerful, and that's why we have pyramids, and we have all these beautiful things, and this is why we have military with chariots and all sorts of weaponry. If Pharaoh relents, then he's basically admitting that the God of these slave people, the Hebrews, this God named Yahweh that we're going to meet, is more powerful than him, and he just cannot bring himself to do it, no matter what comes. I think there's a, a visceral reaction to this. Anybody else feeling like, ooh, this is, this is messy, this is dirty? Anybody else feeling that way? Let's talk about that for a second. I think there's an element of our culture where we love things kind of bleached and scrubbed and sanitized. Do you notice that? Let me give you a couple examples. I, I don't mean to, to like rub you the wrong way. These are just real examples from our culture. And lots of other cultures look in on ours and say, like, yeah, that's true of you guys. The first thing is something that we have that many cultures don't. We call it a nursing home. You guys heard of that? Many cultures in the world look into our world and say, like, you're so scared of death and aging and the process of that that you send it out of sight and out of mind to be somebody else's problem because you don't want to see it. Because sometime, somehow you're too frail or your, your culture can't handle death. And so we send people away where it's from arm's distance and we don't see the difficulty and the challenge and we don't have to walk through that process every single day with people. Another thing that I, I learned uh, in travels to Central America is, anybody ever been to the grocery store to buy some meat around here? Have you ever noticed that they have done absolutely everything they possibly can to make your eye not recognize that that thing sitting on ice actually came from an animal? You guys notice that? For some reason, they don't have a problem with fish, like it's a whole fish. But can you imagine if like next to the steaks, they had an entire head of a cow just sitting there? Because there's a lot of places in the world that's exactly how they do it. They cut it up, they display it. Here it is. Here's the intestines if you want to buy that. Here's a whole heart right next to it. 
Our culture doesn't do that. Why? Because blood and death and gore, those sorts of things are visceral to us, and we don't want to be surrounded by that. And so we've been shaped in this way. So when we read a story like this, we immediately think like, ooh, that's yucky. But this is the everyday existence of what it means to live in Egypt. This is the world that these people are in. And so God has sent plagues. He sent frogs and flies. He's turned water into blood. He's done all of these sorts of things, and Pharaoh still will not relent. He has given him every opportunity to relent, and now God looks in and says the only way left is to do something that will get your attention, that will be so damaging to who you think of yourself to be and who you think of as as your people that you will have no other recourse but to let my people go. I think this is tough, and if you're taking notes, you could write this down. I think so often part of our sanitized culture leads us to love things like God's forgiveness and God's grace and God's love and God's mercy. Would you agree you love those things? But when we open up the Bible, we find out that those things are all 100% completely true, but they also come with things like God's judgment, God's righteous anger to see injustice happening. And sometimes we don't like to talk about those things because those things make us uncomfortable. But if we're going to understand the, the Exodus story as a whole and we're going to understand the Passover, we have to recognize that God's character is not confined to what we want it to be, that this is who God is. And so God reaches in, and this is how chapter 12 begins. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, what's that? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I heard my name. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. I just said months and spit like all over my outline. The ink is going to run now. (laughs) So this is going to be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month uh, of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male one year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh at night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. You guys hear what I'm getting at here? This is not your Safeway butcher counter. (laughs) And you shall uh, let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened. That's like the anti-American Thanksgiving, right? Isn't there like an image of every uncle leaning back and like, I got to go one belt loop out. I got to make room for expansion. God says, tighten up your belt. Put sandals on your feet, put a staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. If you're born after 1950, that means fast. It is the Lord's Passover. Sorry, that's not very nice. I'm sorry. I apologize. 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. That's a part of the verse I don't remember ever reading before. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall befall you and destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. I want to point out a couple things. I want to read the full scripture so we get in a, a big picture idea of what's going on here. I, I think there's a deep temptation in man, many of us, including myself, that when we come to a, a challenging chunk of scripture to kind of pick and choose a little bit. I think one of the things God convicted of me this week is just read the whole thing. People can handle it. Can you handle it? Yes. Yeah, we let the middle schoolers and the kids go, so the rest of you can handle it. So I guess that makes this PG-13. This is what I want to show you. God is now saying, he's already told them what the 10th plague is going to be. Now he's giving the Israelites, the Hebrew people, instructions for what they are going to do. What they're going to do is they are going to eat a meal, but they're going to eat a meal in a new form of time. You should write this down. Look at what God says. Let me flip my page here if I can find the corner. He says in uh, verse 1, he said to Moses and Aaron, this month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. This is what God is saying. There is a new way of marking time. From here on out, you will mark time. You will understand the passage of time. And the first thing that happens every year is you are going to celebrate what I am about to do. Because what I am about to do is so important. It's so central to who you're going to understand yourself to be that this is the first of the month. Every year starts with a remembrance of what I've done. So let's talk about this meal for a second because it sounds beautiful, but if you listen to anything I just said, it's another sort of gore fest. You guys get that? So let's talk honestly about what God has called people to do. He has called them one household annually every year. You're to go out in the field and you are going to pick out one single... Look good, you guys are paying attention. You're going to pick out a lamb. That's going to be on the 10th day of the month. Did you catch that? Then you're going to take it home. Anybody ever seen a lamb? Yeah. I'm not, I don't want to go there. <laughs> but here's the deal. It's spotless and without blemish to the best of your ability. You're going to take that lamb, and you're going to bring it home on the 10th day of the week. And if you want it to remain uh, unblemished, you're going to keep it in, inside with you. And then he says, on the 14th day, you're going to kill it and begin to eat it. Do you know what happens to people who have a lamb in their house for four days? <laughs> I had a friend of mine. Um, do we have chapters of an organization called FFA in Southern California? Is that a thing? Future Farmers of America? Okay, so I grew up with a handful of my friends who are in Future Farmers of America. In fact, the wealthiest teenager I ever met was a buddy of mine. And every year he would go to the county fair and he would buy all these piglets. He would bring them home, and the whole year he would feed them, and then the next year he would take them all, and now they're 150, 200 pounds apiece. He would bring them back to the county fair, auction them off, take the money, and buy more piglets. It was just like an expansive business model for a 15-year-old. And I remember going to his house once. His name was Mason. I said, Mason, what's that pig's name? He said, we don't name the pigs. Why don't you name the pigs? Because as soon as you give it a name, you are going to be attached to it. What God says 
is I want you to understand the magnitude of what's about to happen. So much so that there's a piece of this where you're going to take a cute lamb and you're going to keep it in your home. This should make us go like, ooh. Why don't we do that for a second? Just ooh. Yeah. The book of Romans in chapter 6 says that the wages of sin is death. Hebrews expands on the same idea and says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. This is rooted in Jewish culture. This is where it begins. That without the shedding of this lamb, there can be no forgiveness of sins. So this is the story, and this is how God wants people to eat this meal. He wants them to eat it with their belt fastened, with their sandals on, with a staff in their hand. And what kind of bread does he want them to eat? Unleavened bread. I I didn't know this. For some reason, I had all these ideas of leaven. And I started to read, like, why unleavened bread in Exodus? And I think at the core of it is really simple, that when you put yeast in bread, you have to wait for the bread to rise. God is saying, don't even bother with waiting for the bread to rise. Just get it going and eat it. Why? Because God is on the move and God is going to do something. And you need to be ready when he calls you to move. Verse 14 goes on and says this. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. By the way, 3,200 years going strong. Is that mind-blowing? This is people who have been slaves in Egypt, people who have been slaves in Babylon and Assyria, people who have had their own land, people who have lived in their land while other people rule it, people who have been blown to the wind, people who have undergone a holocaust multiple times. 3,200 consecutive Passover meals. Is that incredible? God said, this will be something you do every year, and they have done it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove the leaven out of your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, another holy assembly. So basically what he's saying is the bookends of this whole celebration you're going to do annually is worship. You're going to worship before. You're going to have the meal for a week, or you're going to have the the Passover remembrance and memorial for a week, and then you're going to end with more worship. No work shall be done on those days. Remember, this is before the Ten Commandments even come to Moses. So God is already beginning to implement the idea of Sabbath and rest as part of who you are. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this day I brought you, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, From the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. You guys keeping track of all this, by the way? Uh, If you listen to the podcast, you can ask Phyllis about all this Jewish stuff afterwards. She'll, She'll keep you in the loop. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. You shall eat nothing leavened in your dwelling place. So here's the deal. And I think this is so cool. The first thing God does, remember, these are slave people in Egypt. He says, I want you to do this, and the blood of the lamb is what is going to spare you. So while you are eating this meal that I've commanded you, something terrible is happening out there. And the only reason that it's not going to happen to you is not because you are good. It's because you are covered by the blood of the lamb. That's an essential theme throughout 
the Bible. And this is what God institutes. The celebration is a family meal. That's God's first ordinance in the Bible to his people, that you're going to keep this family meal forever. Anybody else enjoy family meals? I did a little Google searching because I thought, you know what, there's got to be some research on family meals. It turns out that not long ago, um, a group of researchers at um, this little school called Harvard did a study on what happens when people eat a family meal. I think the, um, the information is three to five family meals a week, all seated. It doesn't matter which meal it is. This is what they discovered for people who ate, ate three to five or more uh, meals a week as a family. Are you ready for this? It's pretty cool. They found lower rates of anxiety and depression in all involved. They found lower rates of substance abuse in young adults and later adults as well. Lower use of tobacco use and a, a sharp decrease in teenage pregnancy just from eating a meal together. They didn't talk about these things. By the way, these families studied are not even necessarily religious or Christian families. They're just people who say, we're going to come together and eat a meal, and all these things happen. Here's some of the things that increase. Kids' sense of self-esteem, their school performance, including SAT, GPA, and other standardized tests, all increase. And what I thought was really cool is social confidence scores all increase, which includes conflict resolution and resiliency to conflict. All because people come together. God instituted this 3,200 years ago and said, you need to, for a week, eat every meal as a family unit. Isn't it so beautiful that throughout the scriptures, it's not just going to be the Passover. God continues to institute celebrations that center around a family meal. God knows all of these sorts of things. The story uh, goes on, and we're going to wrap it up here. Basically, Moses goes back and tells the elders about how they're going to do this meal, and their response is that they fall down and they worship God. We're going to end this morning starting at uh, verse 29. We're going to take it to verse 32. If there's some gnarly, crazy scripture in verse 33, I don't knowingly, I'm not leaving that to anyone. I, I feel like the buck stops here, just so you guys know. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night, and he said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone, and I never noticed this, and bless me also. I want to point out a couple final things. It says that God moved at midnight. Between midnight and before the sun even rises, Pharaoh has already figured out what has happened, summoned Aaron and Moses, and told them to get the heck out. This is the guy who has operated like this for nine straight plagues and said, absolutely not, you're not going anywhere, you can't do anything to make me change my mind. And now he's not only open-handed towards them, he calls them in the dark of night and says, get the heck out. I don't want any of you or any of your stuff. He's going to say, I don't want any of your livestock. I don't want any of your servants. I don't want any of your possessions in my land ever again. Take it. 
and leave. This is the tenth plague, the one that brings Pharaoh to his knees, the one that causes devastation in the land. This is the plague that Pharaoh has some parting words. Get out, and did you notice what he said at the end? Bless me also. I was thinking about that, and I was praying about it this week. The only reason the God person, how he thinks of himself anyways, Pharaoh would ask for a blessing, would be to say that there's something about you two and something about your God that is greater than me. This is all the Bible tells us, that in this moment, Pharaoh recognizes whatever you have going on, it's greater than me, and I want a piece of it. On your way out the door, will you bless me? Is that incredible parting words to him? What awaits these people is maybe in some ways even more difficult for them to understand. They're going to go to the Red Sea. We're going to learn about that. They're going to wander in the wilderness. They're going to learn about that. But in this moment, this is their freedom movement moment. The moment where they realize we get to be our legitimate people. God promised us a promised land. He promised that he would take us out. This is the culmination of all of his promises coming true. And we are going to begin to live out what it means to be God's unique people. I want to end um, by just discussing uh, briefly a theme in the Bible. See, Exodus in this Passover meal that's instituted says, one lamb per family per year. That's what is required of you. And by the shedding of blood, there can be forgiveness of sins. It won't be long until the people are wandering in the desert and they build this tent. They call it the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, God looks in at his people and he implements a new holiday. It's called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is, it means the day of atonement. The day of atonement is the day that the high priest takes one lamb once a year and he sacrifices it for all of the sins of all of the people. So we go from one lamb per family per year to one lamb per priest for all the people. In the New Testament, the Gospel of John opens up this way. John is down by the river and he's baptizing people. And he looks up and he sees Jesus coming and these are his words in John chapter 1 verse 29. I think we have the scripture on the screen. It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, behold, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is God's plan. God's plan is that the wage of sin is death. And without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Jesus comes, one lamb, not annually, not for just the Hebrew people or just for a family. He comes once and for all, for all mankind, for all time. John sees him and he immediately in faith says, there he is, the spotless, perfect lamb. At his crucifixion, he cries out that it is finished. This is what is finished. What is finished is the 
the system that's been in place that blood has to be shed over and over and over and over again. As we wrap up this morning, I want to I wanna invite the worship team to come and, and play a song for us. If you're taking notes and you have a pen, I want to encourage you to, to think of a handful of things as they play and we wrap up this service. The first one is, is this, that we just learned that in the midst of all this chaos and all of these plagues and all of this stuff, this is what God does. He looks in and he says, in the midst of all of it, I want you to set the dinner table. I want you to make room to remember what God has done forever. So my question is, where do we pause? Where do we make room to remember what God has done for us? In part, that's what Sunday is all about. But I think we are called to be people who remember every single day what God has done. So as they play, I would encourage you to first and foremost be thinking, what space and time do I already make? Where can I make more time? Just to sit and reflect on the goodness of God and what God has done in my life. The second thing I I think that we can consider is this. Are we ready when God calls us? Is your belt fastened? Do you have sandals on your feet, figuratively speaking? So often in in my life, I think, you know what? When God calls me, then I'll start getting ready. I'll start packing once I know where I'm going. But I think in a spiritual sense, God is calling us to be pre-packed and ready. Maybe that's for a conversation with a a coworker. Maybe it's a a decision that you, deep down, you know which one to make on behalf of your family, but it's going to be hard. So you've been just kind of going back and forth. Maybe it's God is going to call you into making that decision. And I think the Passover story tells us to be ready, to be pre-packed, so when we are called, we're ready to go. I want to offer you one solution to both questions, and that's that we worship God along the way. So would you lead us as we wrap up our service this morning? stronger the king of glory the king above all kings who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder who leaves us breathless and not in wonder the king of glory the king above all kings this is amazing grace this is amazing grace This is a failing love That you would take my place That you would bear my cross You would lay down your life That I would be set free Oh, Jesus, I sing for all that you've done for me Who brings our chaos back into order 
sing, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. Jesus, as we turn our attention to Christmas, we recognize that you are the spotless Lamb. You're the one that the book of Revelation says is worthy of all of it. And so we proclaim, God, that we believe that to be true. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you that we can walk in freedom, we can walk in, in total humility, knowing full well that our, our freedom and our passions and our gifts and all the things that we get to do are, are simply because of what you have done. So we walk, thankfully, we walk boldly, we thank, we thank you for your sacrifice for us. Thank you for being the lamb that once and for all has made a way for us to walk upright in the world. We love you. We give all that we are over to you. We ask that you would give us opportunities to spread the word of your kingdom through our actions, through our words this week. Would we be a light in dark places? We love you, and we give you our time together. Amen. As we... uh...
as we wrap up, um, as we wrap up, I just wanted to say something. I was just thinking. Um, I, I see a lot of new faces. I, I see a lot of you know people who are maybe relatively new. I, I just want to let you know, people come from all sorts of church backgrounds. You are more than welcome to come up front and talk to pastors who work here and all sorts of people who are up on the stage. We are that kind of church. So please don't ever feel like you can't approach somebody and ask for prayer or just want to have a conversation. So we just want to make sure that you you know that. Have a wonderful day, and hopefully we'll see you soon.